Hey everybody, this is Chuck Marone with Strong Towns. At least this is what's left of my my voice. Um, I've been on book tour since the beginning of October. Uh, we've done, at this point, 52 different stops as part of this book tour. And, uh, and uh, have three more left this week. Um, my voice is is almost completely gone, <laughs> completely gone. And, uh, you know, I'm sitting here kind of, of nursing things along. Um, everything has been going great. Um, the, the crowds have been fantastic. The turnout's been wonderful. The book sales have been really great. Um, we're creating a lot of momentum here, momentum that we're going to bring into 2020 and really use to accelerate this movement and this conversation. I do feel bad because one of the things that has been neglected is this podcast. Um, this is a place where you and I chat regularly. And um, I, you know, in years past when I would have busy travel seasons, I would bring the podcast gear on the road and I would still do podcasts while we were going. And I've been, uh, I brought the podcast gear with me almost every trip. And uh, oh my gosh, this has been the most exhausting uh, two and a half months of my life, really. And I'm including basic training in that. Uh, I think maybe when I did basic training, I was a little bit uh, maybe uh, in, in better shape in my life. But I can tell you, the thing about this has been just utter exhaustion. I don't know how presidential candidates do it, quite frankly. Uh, you see them going around and around and giving talk after talk after talk. It becomes a blur after a while, it really does. And, uh, you know, with everything else surrounding you, uh, with, you know, running this organization and continuing to write and continuing to do other things. Um, it has been a blur and you have been the one that's been neglected. So I just want to say, sorry about that. Um, it's not that I have not been doing podcasts and interviews. I've been doing a ton of, a ridiculous number of interviews. And actually, you know, <laughs> there's a part of me that feels like if you want your Chuck Marone fix, there's lots of places to get it. Um, do I really need to, you know, burden the world with more of, of me talking. Um, no. Um, yet I, I do know that these conversations, um, and this podcast, this podcast feed is really important for me. It's really important for you and, and for the whole strong towns movement. So we're getting towards the end of the year. Those of you that have not been with us in prior years know that towards the end of, uh, towards the end of the year, we take a couple weeks off and, uh, recharge the battery. And I'm kind of myself limping across the finish line here. Uh, we've got the rest of this week and next week here of programming. And then uh, we will be doing that wind down uh, at the end of the year, baking some Christmas cookies and, and doing some other things around my house while the rest of the team uh, does, does similar. So this week, I want to share with you an interview that I did. Um, I was on the Verdunity podcast. Uh, I can't think of the name now, Kevin. You're going to be upset with me. The Cultivate Collaborative, I think. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to find this, and we'll put it in the show notes. Um, if you just type in Verdunity, V-E-R-D-U-N-I-T-Y, into any search engine, Verdunity Podcast, you're going to get the Go Cultivate Podcast. And uh, you should, if you're subscribed to this one, Strong Towns, you should be subscribed to that one as well. Um, these guys, Verdunity, are some of the earliest people to pick up the Strong Towns message and kind of try to put it into a, a, a workable framework. Um, they are an engineering planning firm 
And, uh, you know, they're true pioneers. They're trying to figure out how do we actually go out and take basically the business model of engineering firms and the business model of cities and simultaneously change them so that they're no longer uh, about building stroads and transactions and things that I would consider to be rather predatory. Um, but they're actually about, as they say, cultivating a place. They're actually about building strong towns. They're actually about taking these ideas and putting them into work in a way that works for everyone. I've been deeply inspired by them. I was in Dallas uh, as part of a, a recent tour stop, and I took a little bit of time and sat down with the people at Verdunity for their podcast. Um, they gave me the audio, so you can get this exact exchange on the Go Cultivate podcast. Um, or you can get it here, and uh, but just be sure to sign up for theirs. Theirs is fantastic, and you don't want to miss it. Thanks, everybody, and uh, I promise you at least one more here before the end of the year. Take care. As professionals, we're getting paid. We're very comfortable with this system. This system like works for us, and ultimately, yes, we have to live in these cities, but we're not the ones that are going to get stuck with the pain of our blasé approach to, oh yeah, we have these funding sources for these projects that we have no capacity to do ourselves. And when those funding sources go away, it's other people that are gonna get hurt. Helping community leaders grow financially resilient, resource conscious, and people-friendly cities is the Go Cultivate podcast brought to you by Verdunity. Thanks, podcast intro lady. That's right. This is the Go Cultivate podcast, the podcast for community builders. I'm Jordan Clark. I'm one of your hosts. It's December, and for a lot of people, that's a season for reflection and for generosity. But uh, perhaps more apropos of our 21st century North American context, it's a season of looking forward to what gifts other people are going to give you, and also maybe of overeating hiding it under a festive sweater. I'm here today to give you one of those things, and it's not the food, but it is a very special gift. That is, for the second time, we were lucky enough to speak with our friend Chuck Marone, the man behind the Strong Towns movement. Chuck was in town here in Dallas for his Strong America book tour, and on this episode, Kevin Shepard got to sit down with Chuck to talk about a lot of things, but all of them related to his new book. They talk about how Chuck responds when people ask him, okay, well, what specifically should we do now that we get your basic philosophy? They get into what the role of the professional class is in generating cities that can't pay for their growth, what it means for cities to do a comprehensive plan or a zoning code in a way that's consistent with Strongtown's thinking. And also how Chuck's thinking is still evolving on that issue. They talk about the importance of feedback loops and what those should look like for city staff. And then Chuck responds to the criticism that sometimes the incremental approach doesn't work when you're trying to build large-scale systems. That's a good discussion on its own. There's a lot more than that in this episode, but I think at this point I've talked enough. So here's Kevin Shepard speaking with Chuck Marone. Well, uh, I'm excited today to have a good friend, a person that uh, I've learned a lot from and have drawn a lot of inspiration from, 
Chuck Marone, welcome back to the Go Cultivate podcast, man. Thanks, friend. Yeah, you uh, you have been like the earliest, uh, you know, the earliest really professional to kind of get a hold of me and, and challenge me and ask me questions. And, and you and I have spent many, many hours talking and trying to figure this stuff out. Yeah. And I, I show up at your office and you've got my book and it has pages marked and yellow all over. And yeah, it's in tatters. Um, wow. That's, that's, that's impressive. Well, thank you. Yeah. We're one of those, <laughs> we're one of those apes. Yeah. So you're here as part of the, the book tour for those who don't know about the book. Let, let's just start there. Why, why this book and what are you hoping to accomplish with this book tour? Well, big picture, I've been asked to write a book for years. Um, I started writing this blog in 2008 because I wanted to someday write a book about planning, about engineering, about cities and, and why they struggle financially. Um, writing is one of these exercise kind of things you do. And from really the early years, I had people asking me, I mean, even like agents and publishers, like, would you write a book, write a book? And I wasn't ready. Um, it took a long time and you know this, I mean, you and I have struggled with, uh, the first half of the book, I think is one that emerged over time, but the second half, you know, what do we do? How do we, how, what do we make of all this stuff? Um, that was the one that was the hardest to yeah. actually get to. And it took me a while to get to, to that point. Um, I also, you know, we're building this movement. I mean, the subtitle of the book is a bottom up revolution to rebuild American prosperity. Um, we always said we wanted to get our movement to the point where it could sell a book because then we can use the momentum of that book to grow the movement. And that's, it's really a two part strategy. Um, and our movement is big enough now that the book is done fantastic. And we're using that, that, that success to then turn around and really accelerate the spread of the message. Yeah. You know, you, you mentioned we've been at this a, a while and I remember, and I've talked about it on previous episodes of, of when I was going through the struggle in 2010, 2011, trying to figure out, you know, the, the fiscal infrastructure maintenance issues that our cities all over the country were struggling with. And, I, you know, I found that blog one night in my study and reached out to you and, and it was like, oh, my gosh, you know, we, it's kind of a similar story to when Jordan, Jordan and I first talked. Uh, just you get on the phone with somebody and it's like, man, we just get each other in this well, and you were asking questions that I was struggling with too. And I feel like I had some insights that helped you. Yep. Um, you had some insights that helped me. We were, you know, we were both kind of pushing on the same thing, maybe from a little different angle. And so, yeah, that collaboration was helpful for both, I think. Yeah. So you, you have, you ditched the consulting side and, and which is, I think you sympathize with some of our struggles as a, as a small growing planning engineering I, firm. I did it for, you know, almost 20 years. Yeah. So yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then, and then, so you, you, you did the, the strong pounds thing. And so you're out growing this movement and it's been amazing to see it grow over the, you know, eight, eight or nine years, I guess that, that I've known you now, eight years. And now we're doing this book tour. It's blown up. And you talk about the, you know, the front half of the book and you'll see it doesn't really have a whole lot of highlights and folds because it's stuff already new. The back end of this book is awesome in terms of new content from you that, that I hadn't seen or heard from you. And it's things I'm right back in that same place with you. Of we're trying to figure this out of how do we put strong towns principles. It's no longer about in a lot of places for us now, it's, it's no longer about explaining the challenge now it's, we get it. What do we do? So that's what I wanted to focus this conversation on. And um, let's just jump in there on, I think it's page 108 uh, of the book, but 
you, you have a quote in there that says, Chuck, you've come here and scared us all. What are we supposed to do? What's the five step plan? Yeah. <laughs> what, what are, when you get that question, cause I'm getting that a lot too. Where do you start the conversation? I think there's a couple, there's a couple things there. The, the first one, when the average person asks that question, I feel different than when like the professional asks it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, because it's coming from a very different place. When, when the professional asks it, a lot of times they're asking, I'm, there's a preface to it. I'm comfortable in this system. I know how this works. I, I can make things, I can make a living doing what I'm doing in, in the way of operating today. I have reason for being here. I have professional <laughs> expertise. What's the five-step plan that keeps all of that in place? And, you know, for them, I'm often like, well, I, I don't know as I can make your life as comfortable as you would like it to be. Um, when the, when the person who's not, you know, one of us, one of the apes, one of the architects, <laughs> planners, engineers, you know, professional staff, whatever is asking this question, I feel like it's coming from a different place. It's like, okay, we've kind of been, uh, I'm going to say the word led, although I don't think it's, uh, like an active leader bringing us down, but I think, you know, we, we've, we've come down this path culturally. We've agreed to it. We've gotten here. Um, you know, what do we do now? And, I, often the preface for that is while keeping everything we have going and allowing me to uh, continue to live the exact same lifestyle I'm living <laughs> in the exact same way I'm living with the exact same tax rates, you know, what, what's the, what's the kind of miracle plan? And what I always say, and it's, it's very disappointing to people who ask that specific question is that there's no like real answer here beyond we're going to have to roll up our sleeves, think, figure things out. We, we, we are very much like the people in the, you know, thirties, forties, fifties, and sixties created a new version of America is what they did. They took a development pattern we had and they reimagined it and created a, something brand new. We are taking this very decentralized, spread out, insolvent, expensive development pattern, and we are going to have to reinvent something new. For me to stand up and say, like, I know exactly what that's going to look like. Here's how you go do it. I think it's silly. I think it's going to look different in Texas than it does in Minnesota, quite frankly. Yep. I think it's going to look different in California than it does in New York and Florida. Um, so I think, you know, what we try to lay out, especially in those last four chapters of the book, is here's how you go about creating the incremental steps and the feedback loops so that you can figure this out as well. So... Uh, you mentioned Ferguson, Missouri in the, in the book, and, and I've started talking about them in a lot of my talks as, as well. I was born in St. Louis. I also mentioned San Bernardino, California, in my talks. A absolutely. I, in both of those, I think you know where I'm going. Um, when I was around Ferguson and when we lived in San Bernardino, we're best place to live, work, play, affluent places, you know, the, the shiny new, you know, suburban communities that we think about. Um, and both of those for some similar and some different reasons are no longer what they used to be. Um, are hitting, if not have hit like rock bottom. Yep, right. Yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. Ferguson for sure. Um, well, and, and San Bernardino went through a bankruptcy, you yep. know, I mean, there were many factors, but there always are many factors. The fact is Ferguson or, uh, uh San Bernardino is financially really fragile. And so it's a little bit like when your immune system is fragile and a cold can take you out, <laughs> they're like, well, you died from a cold. Well, no, you died because you're really fragile. And that to me, it was San Bernardino.
Yeah. So I've, I've found, you know, everyone knows about Detroit and we can talk about that. And I liked hearing last night in Duncanville hearing um, your talk and, and how you've kind of woven that Detroit narrative into kicking your presentation off. But Ferguson and San, San Bernardino have been good places for me to kind of get through to communities here of even going back to when we first started Verdunity. You know, I've, I left my former job thinking I'm going to take all of these ideas and things that I'm I'm learning and seeing around the country and bring it back to Texas and change what we're doing. And it was like brick wall, you know, that, that ain't working. And I can finally say now, I, I think in the last six months, there's been a big shift that we can kind of come back and, and talk about in terms of our model and being able to hang on long enough to, to be in that, the place that we are now. But I've always been searching for communities in Texas to find that place that they can connect with, that I can kind of paint that picture forward and say, if we keep doing what we're doing, here's what you're going to look like. Do you feel like Ferguson and maybe San Bernardino, do you, do you feel like those are good examples of where a lot of Texas suburbs are headed? Are there others that you might pull in there that, that would resonate with folks? I think that those are two. Yes. I mean, I think those are two stark models. I, I think there's a lot of different destinations here and I, I'm not really sure that I know or understand them all. I think San Bernardino is a good way to think about it because if I'm, I seem to remember one story where they basically just like laid off every firefighter. Mm-hmm. Like we, we don't have the money to have a fire, a fire department. So we're just going to be like, uh, you know, rely on aid from surrounding communities and have to pay them per call. And then we'll bill that back to the person whose house caught on fire <laughs> and their insurance company. Well, sure. That's like one way to do it, but that's not really why you would move to a city and join with neighbors and others to like collectively do things. Um, San Bernardino has just kind of wound up to be a, a kind of dysfunctional, non-servicing place. And, and you know, I, I think that's a little bit different than Ferguson. Ferguson actually became, uh, and, and I'm going to say this, understand there's some nuance, but actually became like predatory on a large segment of its population in order to kind of prop up and, and continue stuff for like a dwindling number of modestly affluent people who were hanging on. Um, and it, you know, those are two different outcomes. The one is kind of a like general failure that everyone shares in the other one becomes more like internally predatory. Um, but yeah, I, I I think whenever you become frayed and financially fragile, uh, what happens is as a community, you're kind of forced to compromise on your values, your priorities, Mm -hmm. the, the, you know, the, the things that you will accept and tolerate. And sometimes those have a physical dimension to them. Uh, you know, we're not going to maintain this street. Uh, sometimes those have a moral dimension to them. You know, we're, we're not going to maintain a fire department. We're, we're not, we're, we're going to, we're going to find people in our communities, even, you know, <laughs> uh, you know, it's a, it's, it's a predatory situation. So yeah, I, 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 at the end of the day, I feel like the, the, the human body is a good analogy. When we have good diet and exercise, uh, we have a strong body and we can overcome a lot of things that come our way. When we're kind of strung out and, and don't eat well and don't get good sleep and, and you know, don't exercise, you become susceptible to far more things. And I, I think that's where our cities see themselves. Yeah, that's, that's really good. So let's talk implementation. So we, we have a community that they see the, the fragility of their pattern. They, they see the fiscal, the infrastructure maintenance woes. They see kind of neighborhoods declining that they can't maintain. They have this tension happening in the community of 
let's just keep doing what we're doing versus kind of the panic setting in or, or frustration setting in from other, you know, other areas of the community that, that aren't being listened to or, or heard. When we look at implementation, you, you have a slide in your, in your new talk that has four steps that are incremental things that you can do right now. That is a big part, if not, you know, the main part of the strong towns approach. Let's start there and just talk through those four steps because that's what every city needs to be doing right now. Every city, every neighborhood. Right. And then we can talk about you. You've seen steps. our neighborhood's first re- yes, presentation. Yeah. So I think let's put a little bit of nuance on this before we delve into this, because I think a lot of people, if they hear it, will just say, well, that's you know, we're supposed to we've got a 20 million dollar capital improvements budget. Is this how we're supposed to spend it? No, 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 no. <laughs> if you have a 20 million dollar capital improvements budget, 19 and a half million of that should go to maintenance. Go out and take care of what you have and start with the high productivity neighborhoods, work backwards from there. Don't, don't start by the age of the infrastructure. You, it's, it's an insane way to do things. You're not going to maintain every road you built. Like we're too, yep. we're too insolvent to do that. So what we're talking about here is what do you do with the venture capital side of your ledger? What, what do you do with the part where you're trying to make investments to actually grow your tax base, not just sustain and maintain what you have? Um, so yeah, we came up with this four point, this four step approach and what it is fundamentally is a reorientation of where our growth is going to come from. Instead of our growth coming from a a grant we can leverage from the federal government or money we can get from the state capital, instead of it coming from, uh, the bond market where we can borrow some money or a big developer coming in, what we're recognizing is that our best investments uh, really just in a pure fiscal terms where we're going to spend a dollar and we're going to get multiple dollars back is by focusing on the struggles of people in the community and addressing those incrementally. So our four-step approach is very simple. Um, go out and with humility, observe where people struggle, observe, walk with them, experience the city as they do and, and develop a deep understanding of where they are having a difficult time using the city as it's been built. These are real experiences. Um, step two is to ask the question, what's the next smallest thing we can do? And you and I know Jason Roberts. We know Mike Lydon. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. The book Tactical Urbanism is like a great primer for this. Uh, the uh, Better Block Foundation has a whole like list of hacks you can do on a very low budget to try to address these micro struggles. Step three is to go do that you know, do it right away. We should have active programs of people out doing this day after day after day. Mm -hmm. There shouldn't be big, long approval processes. (laughs) There shouldn't be huge deliberations. And then step four is just to repeat this and repeat it in every neighborhood in, 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 you know, every, every year, every, every month over and over. I I think the, the difficult thing here, and it's difficult for city officials, particularly professional staff, to get this. <laughs> is this is actually a different form of local government. Um, we have created local governments today that are a cog in this nationalized, centralized growth machine. Um, out of Washington, D.C., out of Wall Street, we emanate capital and policies uh, that trickle down then, either government trickle down or corporate trickle down to us at the local level. And we have created local governments now as implementation tools of this federal and Wall Street centralized policy. We are essentially tools of them. 
what I'm talking about and what this is really calling for is a reorientation where instead of setting our government up to be tools of this big growth strategy, we become more like servants of our own community. People who are building, gardening, I'm going to use your word, cultivating a community yep. that is going to be strong and prosperous and really the foundation of a successful representative yeah. republic. And we were talking before we started recording about just the dynamic in Texas now with recent legislation and and there's such a hunger for from citizens to re-engage you know, from the city leaders that are just like they're they're so frustrated with the federal government or our state government saying, here's here's everything you have to do, but no money for it. No money to help. Well, the state government's like the ultimate helicopter parent. Yeah. You know, like they come in and they're like, you can't do that. You can't do that. Like, let's get, you know, let me let me let me cut up your your uh, grapes in really small pieces, <laughs> you know, and like, don't you ever do this. And, and then, you know, they, they're not allowing cities to essentially grow and mature yeah. and become uh, you know, self-sustaining places. Yeah. And, and so we were invited just recently to go to speak to the Texas Municipal League Conference. Um, I had back-to-back -back ones. I had a, a talk in the morning with Justin Weiss from Fate um, and another Scott Livingston from League City. We did a presentation at the, the Texas Economic Development Conference down in San Antonio in the morning where we talked about the economic development angle, economic gardening, a lot of the Monty Anderson approach to cultivating wealth and, and small businesses from the bottom up. Um, and at the end of that, a gentleman stood up and said, you know, you need to go, you need to go down the street and talk to the city managers, the TML conference, because our city managers and elected officials need to hear this, which I got to do that afternoon. Monty and I were tag team in a presentation where we were speaking to council elected officials and their frustration is the word I would use. Economic development folks are frustrated because people want mixed use development, want walkable neighborhoods, but the, the vibe in the community is we don't want density. Right. right, right. Um, and then the elected official or the city managers are like, we know what we need to do. We have resource constraints. And then here's, you know, the state telling us, you know, you can't <laughs> you're capping our property tax. We can't annex. We can't control building materials, et cetera. But there's so much momentum for this and interest in, in just and, and we've been talking about it. You guys have been talking about it for, for a long time as well. Just this this local bottom up revolution of. The future of our cities, and you, I forget how you describe it, but the future of our cities is going to fall on local leaders to basically lead. Without a doubt. Again. And, and in the, you know, and towards the end of chapter five in the book, I say we're going to have to actually intentionally opt out of some of these systems that have been created for us. And by local leaders kind of asserting leadership, what they're ultimately doing is filling a, a void. There, there's a there's a huge void right now of innovative ideas of people doing things. I mean, your stuff has taken off and I think your stuff has taken off because you guys are good at what you do, but I'm going to, I'm going to hedge that a little bit. It's also taken off because there's a hunger for it yep. and you're the only ones doing it. I mean, it's, it's like <laughs> there's a huge demand for this. Yeah. And, and I think when local leaders can assert their own leadership, what they will find is that there's this big, huge void that needs to be filled. And by filling it, we will then essentially turn the tables and say, okay, here's what we want as local leaders. Now, state, you be servants for us instead of us being servants for you. I'll give you a, a, an example of how the conversation in, in Texas is starting to change. It was, you know, in five or six years ago when, you know, when we first brought you out, it was we were still explaining the problem here, ex explaining, kind of helping people see that we have a funding gap. Now it's moving to 
the conversations are starting to happen of like, you know what, that, that tech stop money is not going to be there anymore. You know, that, that 50% match from Dallas County for our streets and our strode reconstruction construction or reconstruction is not there anymore. We've got to figure out how to do this by ourselves. And that's been, you know, it's been educate, 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 and try to figure out where we fit as an engineering and planning firm. And now it's, it's like this resource conscious, fix it first, bottom up implementation, community collaboration, all of these things that we've been talking about. It's, there's such a stark difference now when we go after, whether it's a comprehensive plan, a zoning code, engineering projects, how can you make meaningful progress right now with the resources you have? It's a, and it's a just, little bit, I always feel like it's a little bit like, um, you know, you, you, you didn't save for your own retirement. You didn't save for college. You didn't save for anything. You were planning on like your rich uncle dying and inheriting all his wealth. And then you woke up one day and realized that your rich uncle is actually like a billion dollars in debt. And you're <laughs> like, great. Oh, oh no, <laughs> <I'd probably laughs> what do we do now? Yep. Right. So, I mean, I, I feel like that's, our cities have been able to, and, and really, quite frankly, our professional class in yeah. cities have been able to kind of float along with the belief that, well, the federal government will come in and bail us out. The state will come in and give us this money. And they, you, they wouldn't even call it a bailout. They just would call it a funding source. Yep. Like this is the funding source we'll use. Um, and the thing that has kind of made me uh, angry about that, um, I'll use the word angry, is that as professionals – we're getting paid. We're very comfortable with this system. This system like works for us. And ultimately, yes, we have to live in these cities, but we're not the ones that are going to get stuck with the pain of our kind of, uh, you know, blase approach to, mm-hmm. oh yeah, we have these funding sources for these projects that we have no capacity to do ourselves. Mm-hmm. And then when those funding sources go away, it's other people that are going to get hurt. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that's where our professional class has done a huge disservice to to our fellow Americans, quite frankly, by not um, not uh, exerting or pushing forward. I think what are our professional ethics and our professional morality about how, uh, you know, and the things we were taught in school, quite frankly, yep. about how you look at these things. So and I think that's that's honestly you know, part of my evolution from engineering to more planning and our firm's evolution, frankly, from you know almost all exclusively engineering when we first started to more planning now is if nobody has heard the Strong Towns message before, you can't really blame them. But if as an engineer, if you hear this stuff and you're exposed to it and then you still make a conscious decision to do the same old, same old, kind of shame on you. Right. You know, and the same thing with the the planners is I think they get these these concepts better than engineers do. But if you're still cranking out the same old zoning code and the same old future land use plans, shame on you too. Yeah. And we've taken a, a really hard line on that of a different approach to, to engineering, a different approach to to planning and, you know, trying to find the right clients. But the other side of it, and we, we had an early podcast and we're going to do another one, but it's the young professionals. Yeah. You know, I'm not hurting for people applying. It's the, the young engineers, young planners. Right. And we've talked about this before, but the dynamic going in through an engineer's head of whether it's a 20 year professional engineer that's been exposed to this. There, there's a guy in Mississippi that I talk quite a bit about this of, man, I'm really having this struggle of, I get all of this, but my whole company and my job depends on the old way to the kid right out of school that's saying, you know, I'm doing land development and I know this is a bad thing. What do I do? We may actually, we talked about setting up a separate podcast feed just to talk about that of right. like, what is the future of engineering 
look like? Cause it's, it's going to be really different. Well, let me put the olive branch out there too. I think for you and you and I both, there's no like oath of allegiance to join the strong towns movement. I mean, there's no, we're not like a purist cult here. <laughs> you know, that's not like, uh, you know, you're not like, working on your strong town certification program. No, no. I mean, it's like, I worked on a 150 strode. bucks a year to maintain your certification. No, gosh, no, please. <laughs> you know, you, you, uh, I worked on a strode, you know, you worked on a strode and now you're banished to the wilderness forever. We, we don't have like purity tests like that. Bas- basically, we're all trying to figure this out. And I, I think to build on what you said about, you know, if, if you've, if you've digested this and you've thought about it and you're still out doing the same thing kind of mindlessly, um, you are part of the problem. Um, but if you're out doing and, and are in communities that are not ready to take this step, uh, have difficulty talking about this conversation, have leadership that, you know, what, what, what I think our challenge as professionals to do is to keep bringing this conversation back to that fragility. Like here's the long-term consequences of this. Here's what we're going to have to deal with. And so, yeah, sure. Go ahead and build this strode and you're going to get your Walmart and your, you know, Bucky's or whatever. (laughs) And uh, we can all applaud, but like, here's the downside of that. And let's make sure that that's known because we, we have to, our cities will not go from where they're at today to like pure strong towns, utopian vision, you know, overnight by some road to Damascus moment. Um, it's really going to be a, you know, an incremental approach. And I, I think we have an obligation to start talking to people around us about this, uh, to start moving the ball forward. And, and really, quite frankly, in the professions, start making this uh, a front and center of our dialogue, because this is the urgent problem of our day. Amen. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, and it is exciting to see you know, you and I have presented on a, a couple times together in the past. I've, I've been doing a ton of stuff with Monty Anderson lately. You know, Monty, Monty has reached out a few times where he's been asked from Inc. Dev to come out and talk about incremental development, you know, economic gardening, small development, some of those things that he's doing. And then, but the city doesn't have their codes or the, or, you know, the policies in place. And, and he's like, you know, Kevin, you need to come out and have the fiscal talk, the bigger, the bigger picture talk to get them on board. And then I can come back. I mean, at the same time for us, we go out in more communities now and whether it's just an education talk, a workshop or or a planning project, we get the community on board and then they're they're ready of like, okay, now how do we do this? And then that's where I've got to pull money and more of those folks in. So we just started talking about let's do more of these together. And for about the last month and a half, we've been tag teaming some of those. And man, it is so much fun to have the big picture fiscal analysis to to kind of a, a strong towns approach to capital improvement planning and zoning to the let's put boots on the ground and make stuff happen right now and get that conversation all wrapped into like an hour and a half conversation it's really really exciting but let's move out a little bit from your four steps and 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 this is the world that that we as Verdunity are living in right now you know professional planning engineering firm we're out there trying to make a living doing stuff in the typical environment but doing it through a different lens what would your approach to a comprehensive plan, future land use plan, zoning code, capital improvement program, what does that look like? We, we've been discussing this internally a little bit because um, I, I, I've, I, I know you know that I, like, I struggle with those documents. Um, I, I think as a rule of thumb, uh, this is kind of what we've arrived at. And, and I'll say it's in an immature phase. I don't think we've fully figured this out. Um, 
But as a rule of thumb, the more people that need to implement the plan that you've created, the smaller the plan should be. The like more simplified and, and simple and really values-based the plan should be. The fewer people that need to implement the plan, the more complex and, and, and prescriptive it can be. So if you're assembling like a Lego kit, you literally have like every step spelled out in detail on every page because all you're doing, you're not thinking about it. You're not like evolving something different. You bought like the Star Wars Death Star, <laughs> uh, you know, Lego kit and you don't want to end up with the Star Wars, you know, the, the Harry Potter world kit. <laughs> you you want to end up with a Star Wars Death Star kit. And so every specific step is spelled out and you know exactly what to do. Right. Um, if, however, you're saying we want to uh, evolve this neighborhood to be more financially strong and resilient. Um, we want to, you know, work on this park and make this park better and integrate it better with the neighborhood. We want to right size our streets over time and have them uh, be safer for people and have that add value uh, to the community value that would be, you know, measurable wealth value. Well, what you're really talking about is something that's going to take many, many hands to do. Um, like many hands, hands that are part of the city structure that maybe are part of a hierarchy or a silo that are directly responsive to people uh, at city hall. But it's going to take for every one of those, there's going to be dozens of, of non essentially community participants in this act who are free will actors who will do things on their own that yep. may or may not uh, align with what like the top down vision is. And so in those cases, the plans really need to be simpler. Um, they need to be more about the values that we're trying to project and then how we create feedback loops so that if things are going well, uh, we get happy, pleasant feedback. And if things are going poorly, uh, we get painful feedback and, and painful feedback is really helpful. I think a lot of our planning efforts and a lot of our policy conversations really comes down to how do we avoid pain? How do we take pain and discomfort, let, let's maybe even call it just discomfort, away from us? But the reality is, is you put your hand on the stove and you get painful feedback because that painful feedback helps you. It actually helps you understand that I need to take some corrective action. When we obsess about how we get rid of discomfort, uh, what we end up with is something that ultimately is going to cause us deep, deep harm and damage. So I, I would like to see our plans become shorter, more value-based, um, and really have a lot more kind of ongoing feedback loops and reporting you you've seen the stuff they do in Pensacola. I know you. I was just I was just about to go. Oh, there. Okay, good. So because because and let me jump in here for a sec. So you know, we've been chipping away at this for a while, trying to figure this out, and we have what we're calling a cultivate community framework. Totally agree with you. You know, guiding principles, values, desired outcomes. What are the real things that are important to your you know to your community? And then you skip all the crap in the middle and you go to what we call the cultivator cabinet, which is everybody in your community has time, talent or treasure that they're willing and able to contribute. They just don't know how or where or when. So trying to piece together, what are the big things that we have to get right? And then this whole cities can't do it by themselves. So you have to embrace this. You have to fully embrace 
leveraging every resource in your community, the people, the local businesses, the landowners, the entrepreneurs, the philanthropic folks, and how do you provide that framework that connects them together? And then you have this incremental iterative process of here's something we're going to do this week, this month, every three months. We're going to get a core group of people back every three months to check progress and iterate. And it's not a we're going to do this once five years and we're done. This is an ongoing iterative thing that builds on that. And so I, I remember when I first heard Quint you know, on the podcast and I'm, you know, I'm a business guy, too. So I geek out on some of the culture and the value creation and and you know, the meeting rhythm and some of those things. And so my head has been like, how do I take my planning engineering training, my MBA training and mash those up into a, a community business plan, a community development plan? The last podcast you just did with Quint, I think is where you were going. Yeah, yeah. Um, and Dot, Dottie and I had a had a chat. We're, we're trying to get Quint on our podcast as, as well. But I, I met Dottie back in Plano when Quint came and talked right, there. Absolutely. And you know, she saw the talk that that I did with with Bastrop and Faith there and was like, you know, you you need to talk more with Chuck and Quint because she's like, I think you're the middle piece between like Chuck and Joe and Quint of like how do we actually drill this into these local communities. And so that that's what when we're able to get Quint on, that's what I really want to talk to him about is those four circles and Well Quint's amazing. And I mean I, I think the thing is when we're talking about, if we go back to the four steps of, we're talking about a different version of government. We're talking about like a different way of, of creating local government ultimately. And so I, you know, I, I feel like our, um, experience in private practice, yours, mine, Quince, um, is, is very helpful in reimagining what this would be like at strong towns. We create a strategic plan in 2015. It, is a six page document. It is huge, large font. It probably has, <laughs> you know, 600 words. I mean, it's a very like, even, is it still in one of those generic Microsoft word templates? That yeah, has those no, things? totally. Yeah. <laughs> that and blue you can, font, that right. blue. <laughs> and you can read the whole thing in five minutes. I mean, it is a very simple document. It outlines our values, our goals. It sets up basically three different things we're going to work on. It lays out some programs, but not in like, here's, here's, you know, we're going to write a blog. We're going to have a podcast. We're going to communicate a message. We're going to distribute that message and we're going to nudge was, people. Was, to take a, was a book and a book tour in it back in 2015? No, none of that was in it. <laughs> um, since 2015, we have reimagined our staff, basically implementation structure of that same planning document five times and we are about to go through another one in a couple of weeks. We're having a staff retreat and we're literally going to reorganize our staff, our team, our meeting schedule, our internal workload, you know, approach because our organization has now evolved and adapt because we're, we've got this book out, like we've got a million more readers we've got. So we have to change. We have to adapt. Um, I think this idea of starting with core values and then iterating off of that and then really holding ourselves accountable. And, and this is to me where Quint, I think, has helped me a lot. Uh, their focus on the kind of top line metrics and, and not as like a simplified metric, like here's our uh, density thing we're trying to hit. But, you know, we're trying to lower the number. His is like lower the number of uh, illiterate kids entering school. Um, we're trying to, you know, improve uh, th th these big like community wide metrics. Um, when the, you don't meet those metrics, then saying like, what is going wrong here? What, what are we not doing? What are the things that are leading to success? We're in a society now where the challenges we face 
And, and, and the things that we're dealing with are not single vector cause kind of things. They're multi-vector. They're, yep. they're, they're complex and adaptive. And if we don't work in the same iterative way, if we simplify our problems down to, you know, well, we, we need more parks. Well, let's get a parks department, give them a budget and have them go out and do this one thing over and over and over. We, we want good streets. Well, let's have a public works department, just feed them cash and have them go. No, we want great communities. That's a multi-vector complex undertaking that we need to stop treating as if, you know, we mm-hmm. can just create a plan and then execute for the next 20 years. Yep. It's absurd. And, a, you know, a simple question that, that I like to ask is just why? We want to do blah, blah, blah. Why? Right. We want to do this. Why? Why? And, and then, you know, and, and really where it started to come in, in Texas is this, this concept of disposable suburb, right? Of like, do you, do you just want to be best place to live, work, play for the next five years and then have everybody move? Or do you want to be somewhere that stands the test of time? And we're in that place where some of these elected officials, city managers, engineering directors even are starting. They're starting to see that next five to 10 years out. That's like, oh, crap, we got to right. We're in that place that we got to change. It's, it's really hard, though, because like I go to I, I've I've listened to the people from Frisco because I mean, I, I don't I, I, I'm sure the people in Frisco running it are very smart people. Um, I'm sure they're very intelligent, very accomplished uh, very thoughtful. And I'm sure that they're, uh, they believe in their heart that they're building a, a wonderful place that is going to be a benefit to the people there. I'm sure their, their, their heart and their morals are in the right place. Um, the problem is that when you're in a situation like that, it is very easy to believe that you're the smartest person in the room, that, that all the success you're experiencing is a result of your genius and your action and your foresight, the great brilliant plan that you did. Uh, and all the stuff that you're doing to make it come about. And I say this because this is like in my hometown, Brainerd was the rundown railroad town run by dummies. And Baxter was the big suburb run by the smart people. And, uh, you know, <laughs> why did we conclude that? Well, because Baxter was getting all the growth and all the jobs and all the what have you. Um, now it winds up 20 years later. Um, no, you know what Baxter was? It was just the next place in line. It was like their turn, like they had the sunny day and, and it was almost like the people in Baxter and I was one of them as part of that growth machine. You looked at the fact that the sun was shining and you're like, oh, we caused the sun to shine. And uh, you look over and like mm-hmm. it's raining over there and you're like, it's raining over there because they are, you know, lesser people or they, they're not as they're not as smart as we are. And I, I think that that um, is very seductive when you're growing fast. And it's a hard thing to kind of move past um, this idea that the sun's not always going to be shining on us. And Mm -hmm. the real brilliance, I think, of a local leader is the one who can, you know, first of all, grasp that. And second of all, put their city in a place to be successful, even when the sun doesn't shine. Yeah, it's interesting that you you bring up Frisco. So John John Lettler is a good friend. He's development services director there. He's going to be at our thing here in in Dallas in in a little bit. Um, but there, you mean I, in a couple in an hour? Yeah. Well, oh yeah. I guess it'll be happening. It'll be happening. Well, I'll make sure and bring up Frisco <laughs> before, uh, but, but, um, George Purifoy's longtime city manager, maybe retired now, but, but he's been there for forever and had a vision and has seen that vision kind of executed. But let me contrast that with the place that you're going this evening, which 
this will be done by the time this is out, but, but we're going out to fate right. Texas right. this evening. Um, that's out people who I think are truly very brilliant. Like I really do admire them deeply. That, that is, uh, that's an area out towards where I live that, um, they're talking about adding a lane each direction on the interstate out there. And it is about to be the next corridor that could be the next Frisco. And, and so you have this interesting dynamic out that direction of, of trying to do the planning and set up to like, where would we put the big stuff if it comes to us? And then you have these little guys in fate that are, that are really hammering the strong towns approach that, right. um, and building, you know, their core downtown from the, the inside out that you'll see when you're there. So it's, it's funny too, because we've had people criticize us. Like, how do you hold fate up as a, as, as a great model, because they just don't look like a strong, they're the, like, like the, uh-huh. uh, the opposite of a strong town. And the thing that I love about fate and the reason why when asked, we're going to, I'm, I'm spending an extra night here just to go to fate. I'm dead tired. I've been on the road <laughs> for months. I, I want to go home. Um, I'm like, yes, I'll stay Friday night because I want to go out there and, and really celebrate them and help them any way I can, because what they're doing is thinking, they're trying to figure it out. They're not burying their head in the sand. They're not saying like, yep, we're the next place. So let's just, it would be very, very easy for them to say, all right, we're going to execute on this strategy that's been handed to us. Um, the rising tide of us being the next place will make us all look like geniuses. And then when we do, we'll all be able to get great paying jobs and bigger cities uh, as the triumphant people who delivered this success and brought this city from obscurity to this gr- <laughs> these grand heights that would be easy for them to do instead they're asking really hard questions and i i i quite frankly think they're heroes i would agree with you and, and this is back to implementation of one of the things that that you can do is their their model that they're running new development through and using the 20 to 1 40 to 1 you know that that public private ratio as part of how they're developing cities has you know justin has been presenting that for three years now and early on i saw him present it and he i mean it was just like people were looking at him like what are you talking about and then when we presented this last time at tedc together it was i mean 90 percent of that room was all in on we've got to do this and that's something that now that we're being asked to do is can you can you build a spreadsheet that looks at um, the fiscal sustainability of an individual development coming in of, of let's at least make sure that a new development is breaking even. So to get, yeah, to get back to comp plans and, and implementation and this, there's a feedback loop that needs to happen in terms of we're going to try things and get feedback from our citizens. There's also the piece of how does a city get comfortable with this chaotic, but smart approach of we're going to loosen the regs a little bit. We're going to let our we're going to, here's the outcome we want here's, and we're going to trust our community to implement and try things. Those are two pieces of this that are really, that we're really trying to figure out is you have a staff that wants to make this happen. How do we let this go, but still preserve, protect health and safety. Um, and then what's that feedback loop from the citizens back to staff or whoever your implementation leadership team is. So let's think of a, of a comp plan that has like a goal. Like we, we want to have a fiscally, viable city like we want to be solvent and stable financially so that our residents and our businesses and the people here will prosper part of the way we're going to implement that is that we recognize that when we have uh when we have a place where people can only drive that is incredibly expensive beyond our capacity to afford um we have people have to we have to pay to park uh, in terms of building those spaces, giving up that tax base that comes with that, 
Um, our families have to have two cars. So as part of our background analysis here, we've recognized that we would like to have a community that is more bikeable and more walkable. And that's ultimately like our implementation goal is to create a city that's more bikeable and walkable. How do we then go out and implement that? I think the standard approach is to say, well, let's, let's create a, a master bike plan and let's go out and, you know, we'll decide where the bike lane should be. We'll go and put them out and, uh, you know, we'll, we'll kind of ram this down people's throat. We'll make huge capital investments and then we'll instantly create a bike lane. And the bike advocates will point to cities that did this and they'll kind of cherry pick success stories and say, <laughs> yeah. look, they've got, they got people who bike and they did this. And so we need to do that. Here's what I think a, a, an approach with feedback would look like or a strong towns kind of approach. Let's go out and find the people who are biking today. They're out there. They're out there biking. Um, in Minnesota, they'll be biking in January and February. There's people who do this, uh, you know, despite the snow and the cold and what have you. Let's go find those people who are biking. That's like our, you know, uh, ground zero. What do they call it in an outbreak? It's patient zero, yeah. right? Like that's, <laughs> that's them. Let's get to know that person. Let's follow them around. Let's figure out where they're biking and let's figure out where they have a difficult time biking. Where's the, in your commute or your bike, where's the block or two blocks or what have you that are really particularly difficult? Let's try to address that difficulty. Let's try to make incremental improvements to make that better. What you're going to find when you do that is that that like patient zero, that like, you know, initial person is like an indicator of like something else that's there. In other words, there's a patient one and a patient two, but they don't bike in that condition because there's this obstacle that just makes it a little too difficult for them to do. And if you address the problem with the one, then you look and say, okay, now are we getting two? Are we getting three? Okay, well, that wasn't, if the answer is no, and it's like, well, that wasn't the thing that would get people out. So then let's do the next thing and the next thing. And what you're trying to do is you're trying to identify kind of incrementally what will get that second and third and fourth mm -hmm. person out there. And then you use that feedback and you follow them and you figure out where their, where their kind of threshold struggle is. Um, and you work iteratively off of that. So often we look as planners and we say, okay, the guy in the Hummer uh, who, you know, takes up two parking stalls uh, and has the bike rack on the back. How do we get that person to bike? And I'm like, you're not going to get that person to bike. Like, that's not the person you're after. If you want that person to bike, you have to have a culture of biking. Like that person will go vacation in the Netherlands and bike all over the place. They're not going to bike here. What you need to do is get the person who's already biking and say, how do we build uh, incrementally on that? How do we get the, like, the next person? And if you do that over and over and over, you will wind up with lots of people who bike and that will re become a reinforcing feedback loop. We can do the same thing with walking. We can do the same thing with park usage. We can do the same thing with all the different things that we're trying to accomplish in our cities. If we just kind of humble ourselves to act iteratively, we can do this with much smaller budgets. Uh, yeah. We can do this uh, with, you know, far greater returns, like instant returns. I think we can see success more quickly, make fewer mistakes. And, and certainly those mistakes will be far less costly um, if we go about it in this way. If you're up building stuff and I mean, this is the, the, the interesting thing. If you ever get Mike Leiden uh, in a room, talk to him about failure. Um, because, you know, in the tactical urbanism, they talk about this a little bit, but they publish success 
And certainly when Mike, you know, goes out now, they're having a lot of success with the things they do. Mm -hmm. And part of what they do is promote their successes. But he will tell you, quite frankly, we've done things and nobody shows up. Oh, yeah. We've gone out and done these interventions and they don't go anywhere. Well, you know what? You just spent a thousand dollars figuring out mm-hmm. that that wasn't the right thing to mm-hmm. do. That's way better than spending, you know, one and a half million redoing something to find out you're wrong. Mm-hmm. So I, I feel like a, a, an underrated aspect of the feedback loop is actually having these mistakes early and rather less costly. And quite frankly, if it's not time for a bike lane in a certain place, and you know that wasn't the right one and you learn that cheaply and then you go out and you figure out like okay wow it's really working over here and when we do this over here we get a lot of momentum eventually you probably get back to the one that didn't work and you can try it again and maybe it will work then because you've like built up to it so i i think the the feedback loops are really important um to directing our actions and when we embrace them it's a different form of government, but it's one that is highly responsive. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's really, it's the one, it's the kind that people want in their communities. Yeah. And, and I know you and I have both talked and written in the past about kind of the, the walk shops or the, the walking tour where you go take a group of people in their neighborhood and walk around. And that's such an effective way of, I'll use the buzzword community engagement, citizen engagement, but to try to have those walks in the neighborhoods and, um, our approach has been to take a street and we'll walk up the street and just listen and say, what, what are the challenges? What do you like? What do you not like or whatever? And then we'll flip it and come back down the street and talk about, okay, well, what if we, what if we narrowed the street? Here's the outcome that you would get. What if you planted some trees or, and, and you get them thinking and then having those kind of in different neighborhoods in the community and then doing like the, the types of projects that you're, you're doing and, and looking at it in, in two ways of, is it working right here in this place? But then also, maybe it doesn't work in that place, but did we learn anything where we might be able to apply it over in this other area? And, right. and that, it's just a completely different way of, of an implementation. But you could do a hundred of those for a hundred, you know, thousand dollars a piece, a hundred thousand bucks. And that gets you way more improvement and way more, you know, lessons learned than one hundred thousand dollar, you know, go out and put concrete in the ground, you know, kind of project. Well, and quite frankly, and you, you know this too. When, when you go ask people what they want, you're going to get all kinds of crazy, stupid stuff. People don't really know what they want. And, and, and that's not an elitist statement. It's actually a really humble statement. Um, if you go out and observe how they act and what they do and you actually experience it with them and you're not experiencing in a like, hey, is this cute or is this? Not? But you're like, you know, where is where does where is this really hard? Um, where does this work really well? And you're using your professional expertise to kind of learn from that. Um, now yeah, you're getting somewhere. Yeah. We, it, you're reminding me of, we, we did a one, we're, we're finishing up a comprehensive plan for Crowley, Texas, which is out by Fort Worth. And we did, we did a couple of walking tours there in some different neighborhoods and we did one downtown. And, um, in all of those, we're walking along and, you know, in, in a neighborhood setting we're we're walking along and, you know, there's intersections you would come to and there's no crosswalks, there's no handicap ramps. And in a couple of them, we actually were, we had someone in a wheelchair with us and everybody got to watch that person struggle. And it was Absolutely. like, you could see like the holy crap, like, you know, or you had a mom and two kids and the way that she interacted with her, with her two daughters on those walks. And then the downtown one is like, we're trying to cross bar ditches and zipping around power poles in the middle of a sidewalk. And you like you said it a million times and, and we see it all the time. You don't see these things until you are using your own two feet to walk it. 
And, and when you walk it with them and, and you're right and you just listen and experience and what I like to do is walk and see if they comment about it themselves first. And if they don't, I don't want to miss an opportunity. So then I'll point it out to them and say, look what we just went around. And they're like, Oh, you know, that power pole's in the middle of the sidewalk and we had a foot and a half on either side of it. But I also like to, when we do those, I like to bring city staff with us because they hear the citizens say, well, all we want is a, is a crosswalk here. If they would just tear down that one dead tree right. and, and staff are like, we never hear these things, that stuff. And I mean, the city manager, he was like, we could do those tomorrow. You know, and a couple of them, they did. Right. It's funny because we have a lot of members at Strong Towns who are computer programmers. And I've talked to a lot of them on the phone. And the thing that they will almost always say is that uh, it's the iterative approach that that gets us. Um, when we if you if you look at computer programming, so much of it is uh, we try something small. We see how it works. We watch how people use it. And then we respond to that. They used to do, I mean, this decades ago, they would sit down people in focus groups and they'd be like, what would you like? And, and they would tell you, and it was, it was dumb. They were getting bad responses. People didn't like the end product. They were assembling things by committees. They would use these uh, processes they call the waterfall process, where it's like, here's the beginning, here's the end, and then here's the like 500 steps we need to do in, in succession. Mm -hmm. And there'd be no real checkpoints. And now they use these iterative approaches. They'll try like a minimum viable product. They'll Scrum. see how people use it. They, yeah, we use Scrum. They use, we'll start using like Scrum techniques and these sprints. And when they see us talking about that and applying it to a city, they're like, my gosh, why don't we do it that way? That is like a, a, a and, and I'll use, you know, from a computer geek standpoint, it's like a highly logical thing to do. Yeah. <laughs> and I would agree. It's a highly logical thing to do because you're taking irrational, illogical humans and crafting environments for them. And you don't do it by programming it. Like here's the way that I as a computer programmer think you should use it. Here's as I as a civil engineer think you should use it. How are yep. you actually using it? And then let me be the responsive to that. Yeah. I want to ask one question on that and then I have one wrap up question and we'll be done. So my I, I think it might be my only struggle that I have left as an engineer with this incremental approach. Infrastructure costs money. Things, especially underground utilities, stormwater, water, stormwater and sanitary, wastewater especially. Water, you can make it go where it needs to go. I still feel there's a part of me that thinks the master planning and, and getting getting some bigger picture thinking for when we're going to invest in a big pipe somewhere that is still a place where some bigger picture plan, long range planning makes some sense. I get the same pushback from Jarrett Walker with transit planning. <laughs> so and I, I hear him. He's like, I, the end game we want are these big systems. And so shouldn't we plan ahead for them? Yeah. So how do you, I mean, in terms of prioritization and, and I didn't have a chance to, I'll, I'll just nut, just talk briefly, the barbell approach that you hit in the book of most of it on maintenance and then, you know, investing in a few projects totally agree with. Um, when we're looking at infrastructure prioritization, you always go back to the, you go to the inside out, go to the core downtown, go to the neighborhoods that are productive, um, go to the bottom, the bottom of the system and work your way back up. But is there any advice that you would have there of if we're in a new community and we want to grow the right way in the old days, you know, there was no underground sanitary. It was in the street. Right. And that's, I'm but still going to always, I'm but gonna, it wasn't because Paris has sewage treatment true and they built a city before well, so my answer right and now is like you just build 
dual lines or something well, no. like that. But Here, here's well the the answer is that the the extra cost that it costs you ultimately to retrofit is insurance money. You know, you, you can go out and build it all up front and be like, okay, you know, this is the master plan. And then if you're wrong, it's all screwed up. And no, it I'm will definitely, be I'm not saying build it up. No, front, but I mean, but even plan, where's that? Th- there's a, okay. But let's, let's nuance what you, you said a little bit. Cause you said, if you're building something new, I, I don't spend a lot of time worrying about this. And this is what I tell Jarrett Walker too. Like I'm, I don't spend no, a lot of time. No building, money. Yeah. Because a, we don't have any money to build new stuff. B, we shouldn't be building new stuff, even if we did have the money. Um, if we actually got, if you take a city like Lafayette, Louisiana, mm-hmm. where instead of having a 40 to one private to public investment ratio, we have a 0. 0.5 to one. Okay. Mm-hmm. So we, we have, you know, double the amount of public infrastructure liability than we actually have tax base. If you take a city like that, you say, we're going to resolve that and we're going to get it, you know, back to 40 to one. That means that your tax base is going to have to grow 80 times on the same infrastructure or your infrastructure is going to decrease by 95%. Okay. Right. Right. Either one of those, (laughs) the, the thought of like building something new or a new city is absurd. Okay, fine. We're going to come here to the Dallas-Fort Worth area where you're having way more growth than they are in Lafayette. You're having a robust economy. Everything's growing. We're building new highways, you know, congestion, yada, yada, all this stuff. Um, if you said you were going to add a million people to this, you know, MSA over the next decade, which I, I don't know if that's a realistic number or not, but let's say you're going to add a million people. It's actually be more than that. <laughs> really? Okay. What would it be? Closer to two over the next decade, two million people. If, if you believe some of the, if you if you said that, I think water might limit that. But if if you said we're going to add two million people over the next decade, and you said we're going to put three quarters of a million in the one square mile, two two square miles of downtown Fort Worth, two square mile, another another three quarter million in the downtown of uh, of Dallas. And you were going to spread the other half million in the six block core downtown of every other city in this MSA. Um, you would not build a single foot of pipe, a single foot of anything. And you would still be contracting. You would still be insolvent and contracting infrastructure systems. We're, we're ending up in the same place. I'm, I'm just asking the question because yeah. I get it a lot. And, yeah. and it is, it's focus people back in the existing right. places. Don't build anything new. You sh- you're still going to have a bunch of places that are that are doing it, which is which is dumb. Right. But that's a conversation that we're having with. You met Clint Hale from from Cog. Um, when you look at the region and Felix, if Felix were in here, he would say our our cities have plenty of capacity to add more people in what we already have. And maybe there's a few places that you might have to upsize a pipe here or there to accommodate that additional population. Maybe, maybe. Well, and if you do that, that will be a good thing. Like you'll actually be, I mean, I, this is why I, I mean, be a I good tell, return on returning investment, be a great Absolutely. return investment. I, I tell engineers all the time, like in, in the world that I envision, you're not going away. Like we still need engineers. We're just going to need you doing different things. You're going to have to figure out, okay, we've got this 
12 inch pipe. We actually need a 20 inch pipe. Yep. Maybe we, you know, in, in this kind of Jarrett Walker, Kevin Shepard, how do we think ahead and plan? Maybe we make it a 24 inch pipe because we anticipate future or whatever. I, I'm, I'm down with that. Like I, I, those are, those are very prudent steps. That's what I see as the other side of the barbells. Like what are those investments? And, and you don't do it until you've done the incremental and you have for lack of a better word, some proof or some, some data points that make it worth doing. But when you're looking at how do you, you know, how do you close this gap? How do you, you increase revenue in some of these older places? It sometimes it does come down to that's an old two inch water pipe down there. We've got, you know, those, those make sense. Let me, But, but, but understand though, I think, I think engineers look at it as failure. Um, in an absurd Not way. All of us. No, but I mean, uh, uh, I think professionally we're kind of taught to look at it as failure. If we put in an eight inch pipe and then two decades from now I have to come back because of all the growth and make it a 16 inch pipe. And it's like, well, why didn't people think of that the first time? Mm-hmm. Because you should have thought and anticipated all this growth. One encouraging thing here yeah. at least is we're hearing that conversation about the strodes, about the six lanes, four lanes or whatever. Right. And there's more people saying, you know, we never needed those six lanes. No. We could have had four I mean, or three. That's the problem is that the way we have responded, if you are a conservative engineer, if you're, if, if you're an engineer who's doing a conservative design, what that means is you're over-designing it by double. Because we want to make sure that no matter what happens in the future, being, we've yeah. got lots of capacity to handle it. And that's what is considered conservative in our profession. What should happen is we should actually be undersizing things, saving all that money that we're spending today on all this oversized stuff that never gets used, and then using that to retrofit. And it will be more expensive per foot. Yes, that's basically your insurance premium to make sure you're not screwing up. It's going to be a little more expensive per foot to retrofit, but that we should understand is like the cost of success. And you know what? When you have to go back and do that, it's because you've been successful. Like that actually is a good thing to cheer. (laughs) That's a good feedback. As opposed to that six lane strode that has no traffic where you're like, well, if someday it grows, we got plenty of capacity. We were conservative in our design. Conservative design is saying, how am I the most frugal here getting the most out of this? And then bumping it up when we actually run up against that that threshold. Mm-hmm. And really, quite frankly, build a city with feedback loops. At feedback loops we talked about with where you put in your uh, bike lanes. But feedback loops also means allowing your neighborhoods to evolve and adapt. Mm-hmm. If you've got congestion in this part of town, um, that's an opportunity for the other part of town to build some corner stores and build some other stuff and have more people move there and live there. Um, because now, you know, if, 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 if it takes me 20 minutes to get to the store to get groceries, but I can start a corner shop that will be a five minute walk from you. Well, now all of a sudden that's a competitive undertaking in a marketplace. What we've said as engineers is the only way you can respond to stress is by building highway capacity. Yeah. We have to allow multiple ways for communities to evolve and adapt and respond to stress. And we need the city leaders that want to embrace that, that right. approach, which is not easy. Um, all right. I want to wrap up with a, a little, 
lightning round here and we'll see how well you know <laughs> you know your own book here but okay. if, if you have the book it's on page 186 but this was a table that i just i really loved and it compares conventional thinking to strong towns thinking i love this too and this i was a little bit frustrated because in the audiobook he doesn't read it and oh. i know and i understand why he doesn't read it because this is the best page in the whole book <laughs> i understand why he doesn't read it because it would be like a slog maybe to read it like it maybe wouldn't come out as good but we got i got to that part because i listened to the audiobook because it's my yeah. book i wanted to hear how he did it and i got to that part and i'm like oh i'm utterly disappointed but yeah go ahead all right so i'm gonna read the conventional thinking and then i all want right. you to give me the strong, strong counts ready yeah. so the first conventional thinking is build it and they will come oh you you have to create a place that people that justify what you're building basically you you've, you've got to attract the amount of wealth to justify what you want to build I don't know how I worded it in there. You said get them to come so you can afford yeah, to build it. Yeah, get them to come so you All can. Right. All right. Second one. Major projects are a catalyst for growth. <laughs> oh, um, major projects are the culmination of success. Well done. Yeah. Major projects are made possible by productive growth. Is right. What the book says. right. Third one. Major projects create jobs. Oh, no. Jobs are the byproduct of a successful place, of a productive place. Well done. Yeah. Finance major projects with debt to speculate on future growth. Oh, I, I don't know what I would have written there, but like <laughs> the strong downs approach is, uh, you know, on, on debt is like twofold. Um, I, I you, you, we never speculate on basically, I probably said something like we don't speculate on future growth, particularly with debt. Um, you know, build, yeah. be, become successful and then use that to leverage your future. Yeah. We didn't, we didn't have a chance to get into the, the debt part of the book, but, but, uh, what I did thought I this write? Was, you wrote finance major projects only with a secure and stable tax base. Yeah. Okay. That's you a, were, you were there. I had an editor. Uh, last one, <laughs> <laughs> last one, future maintenance liabilities are the responsibility of future generations. That one just hit me right between the eyes. Cause I've got two young kids and it's like, yeah. Mm. If we don't create prosperous places, we're just passing on liabilities. We, we, it's our responsibility to build a solvent, uh, productive place. Yep. What did I write? <laughs> a project is only viable if it builds wealth for future generations, yeah. not unfunded obligations. Right. Thank so you. I wanted to leave it there. My kids are the reason I'm doing this. We all have an obligation to change what we're doing. And I think strong towns and this, ridiculously fast growing movement now uh, is playing a huge role in it. I'm really pumped to see the the rest of the conversations here in North Texas, how the rest of the book tour goes. Um, and I hope you get, I hope you get some time there with the knuckleheads in DC to really talk about what we can do. Cause I think your conversation, the strong towns conversation is the closest thing out there to bridging the gap between what is unfortunately a more divisive uh, society in our country. Well, you were around when our site had, you know, a, a 500 readers a month, yeah. um, you know, in a year we were reaching maybe 6,000, 5,000, 6,000 people. And we were cheering like, wow, look at all these people. And this year it'll be 2 million. Um, wow. so it's, uh, yeah, it, 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 for all the people who have been with us for a while, it's always fun to share those numbers because, um, I get to see them every day from the dashboard, uh, behind the, behind the counter and be amazed at yeah the momentum that this conversation has 
but it really, quite frankly, it's been people like you, Kevin, uh, you know, your team at Verdunity, uh, others who have been out there doing the hard work and, and sharing this message that has helped grow this movement. And I guess my promise to you and to everybody else is that we'll keep doing what we do. Um, we'll keep, you know, sharing this message and, and I'll keep, you, you know, keep doing what you can. I'll keep doing what I can. <laughs> exactly. Build strong towns. I'll, I'll be out there doing it and, and, and you keep, you know, following up and doing what you're doing. And I, th I think we're going to see some, I mean, we're already seeing some amazing things happen. I think it's going to, uh, really continue to accelerate. Yeah. It's nice to have some more success stories to share with some of the doom and gloom. Oh <laughs> man, like two or three years ago, it's like, show me the strong town. And I'm like, oh, I hate that question. Like, where's the place that's fully adopted all your ideas? And I'm like, oh, come on. But now today we've got, we, we have like literally like every week we have new success stories coming in of places doing things and seeing uh, good results from them. And we built this and we have a whole podcast of it now. Uh, we mm -hmm. have this whole repository of people uh, where, you know, we're documenting these success stories and big and small. And, and yeah, it's, well, it's, we will, it's getting uh, crazy. Yeah. We'll, we'll share all the, the strong towns info on the, uh, on the show notes and talk about it in our outro too. But it's, um, if you're not following strong towns already, strongtowns.org, get on there, sign up to be a member. Are you guys still doing member drive? We did last week, dude. Well, I knew it was going, so it's done now. Oh, no, you mean, I, I thought you meant, are we still doing member drive, like, overall? No, no, we, we, only <laughs> go, we only go NPR for one week. Okay. And then we get back to regular programming. Um, <laughs> but, we, I mean, we had a really successful member drive, so respect, respect that uh, people, you know, support us for a week, and then we, we go back to what we do. All right. Thanks, uh, thanks again for being on. Thanks, man. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Go Cultivate, and especially thanks again to Chuck Marone for taking the time to be on with us. If this is the first episode you've heard of our show, and if you liked it, you're in luck because we have about 50 episodes for you to go back and listen to. If you have suggestions on a topic we should cover or revisit or a guest we should have on soon, we always love hearing that. Our email for this show is podcast at verdunity.com you can also as always connect with us on social media or at verdunity or you could join our online network it's specifically for people working for a local government or a local agency that's called community cultivators network communitycultivators.co if you want to learn more about strong towns well they have a website too as well as three podcast streams at least that i know of that are very much worth your time. I listen to them on a weekly basis. And I can't stress enough how highly we recommend picking up Chuck's new book, Strong Towns, colon, A Bottom-Up Revolution to Rebuild American Prosperity. And I'll drop a link into the show notes for this episode. But in the bottom-up spirit, I'd say find your local bookstore if you have one and order it from them. You don't have to. Just get your hands on it makes a great gift for any and all the holidays, whichever you're into. Or you could just show up with it instead of a bottle of wine to the next dinner party you go to. I think people still go to dinner parties. That's where I'm going to leave this one. Thanks again for listening. Now, I want to encourage you to go out and cultivate your own strong town. See what I did there? See you on the next episode.